What is different for us in this period is that because of the volatility, you may have to execute rapidly left at one point and then pivot to executing rapidly right at another point. And so the ability to do that, right, to execute in different directions as needed and pivot, that's where the edge really comes. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Michael Bershon, global co-leader of our practice, who joins us to discuss strategy in an age of volatility. Michael recently co-wrote an article on this topic with Bob Sternfels, our global managing partner, and with Ishan Set, co-leader of our Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice with Michael. Ishan joins us from New York, and his client work is focused on banking and securities and financial services. Michael joins us from London, and he works with clients in energy, natural resources, and industrials. Michael also serves on the McKinsey Global Institute Council, which advises on research on global economic, business, and technology trends. Michael and Ishan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thanks, uh, Sean. Great to be here. Ishan and I are looking forward to this session. Michael, your article opens with a quote from the late Ayrton Senna. You cannot overtake 15 cars in sunny weather, but you can when it's raining. Can you explain for us the connection to someone driving their company strategy right now and what makes this period of volatility so different from those in years past? Certainly, it is volatile out there. It's raining hard out there. And I think we all see that. So a moment of volatility, but also therefore a moment for the corporate order and the rankings and performance of companies to change. But it is an unusual period, right? Because what we've got now is we've got new shocks layered on top of old shocks, layered on top of enduring but accelerating at disruptive trends. It's right? so a new shocks, whether that's the tragic war in Ukraine, the return of inflation, the old shocks, actually, they haven't gone away, right? The COVID pandemic and the overhang that that has brought, whether that's for debt or for mental health or for return to a return to work in the supply chain at disruptions. And of course, the trends that we've been wrestling with for a while now, whether that's uh, digitization or the net zero transition, for example, on things like digital, probably we ain't seen nothing yet, right? So new shocks on top of old shocks, on top of enduring trends, all amplifying one another, which makes it therefore a period where in our view, volatility is rampant. And you can see that with some of the indicators, whether that's inflation, uh, the CPI or food prices, of course, energy prices, consumer confidence hitting historic lows in parts of the world. And of course, we've seen periods of volatility and we've seen volatile indicators at different times in the past. But at least for us, and when we talk to our clients, what's what's quite unusual is the number and different things that are outside normal ranges at the moment. And secondly, the extent to which sectors are colliding. Ishan and I and colleagues sometimes talk about sectors without borders. Now, you used to be in an era where you were in one sector, you sort of understood it. And what happened to the left and right or upstream and downstream was pretty well understood. But now we have more and more sectors colliding with each other. To take energy just as one example, the, the importance now of so many energy companies thinking we need to deeply 
move towards consumer intimacy and understanding uh, what our customers are doing and behave more like a retailer. So all of that adds up to an unusually volatile period for leaders. Thank you, Michael. So Ishan, can you share some of the ways you're seeing business leaders responding to this volatility? We have had collectively, Michael and I, dozens and dozens of conversations with CEOs, CFOs, other C-suite executives over the last several months. And, you know, one refrain is common, which is we haven't quite seen anything like this yet, right? This feels different. And so the extent of that volatility is, is clear. But what's interesting in our discussions is we, we are definitely beginning to see two leadership mindsets emerge through the dialogue, right? There is clearly one group of leaders who is generally more cautious. They're a little bit more defensive, batting down the hatches on balance sheet, doing all the right things on expenses, planning out scenarios. But strategically, they're very much in, in wait and watch mode. But equally, we're absolutely seeing a group of leaders who are very much on the offense, right? We talk about this notion of ambidextrous leadership, being incredibly conservative on managing the downside, but equally being very bold and aggressive on capturing the upside. And that notion of ambidextrous leadership is something we are seeing in terms of mindset and leadership behaviors among a number of our clients. And those leaders are doing all of the things I mentioned on, on the defensive front, but they're also on the front foot around things like M&A, right? They're dusting off the old playbook on targets they may have looked at. They're thinking about the pipeline, given where valuations are. They're thinking about some fairly material resource reallocations. They're thinking about new product launches and figuring out how could they pull ahead with that racing analogy, right? Pull ahead from the pack and create real distance relative to their peers and really using this moment as a moment to play both offense and defense. And so ambidextrous leadership is something that we are really beginning to see more. And this is something that is borne out by all of our research over several economic cycles. We've looked at thousands of public companies and measured their performance both before, during, and after uh, prior crises. And what we did is divided this group into two categories, what we call the resilience, companies that were able to perform on a TSR basis, total shareholder return, ahead of their peers, and then the non-resilience, everybody else. And two things uh, really come through strongly. The first is that the resilience performed much more strongly than the non-resilience through both of these crises, right? That is clear. But what's even more important is when you look at the source of that outperformance, they were firing on all three cylinders. They were pushing on revenue growth. They were working on performance improvement through margin and margin enhancement. And they were preserving real strategic optionality, which we define here as retained earnings um, on the balance sheet. This is basically measuring something known as the Altman Z-score, which essentially predicts the likelihood of a company going into bankruptcy within the following two years. And we think that's actually a, an excellent indicator for that notion of resilience. And so firing on all cylinders, playing offense and defense is really what this is about. And in your research for your article, did you find any industries that were exhibiting more resilience to external shocks than others? So it is interesting. We have cut this data, you know, five ways from Sunday by industry, by size category, through different cycles, as you, as you might imagine. At the highest level, 
this has played through consistently across almost every industry sector that we have seen. I think the more market feature that you see is huge variability in performance between the top 10, top 15% in a given industry sector and everybody else. And so you do see this notion of a group of resilience popping to the surface in almost every sector. So that pattern is quite consistent across industries. Thanks, Ishan. In your article, you focus on this notion of leaders needing to develop three types of edge. Can you take us through the three types and explain why they're important? So look, the concept of edge really is very much akin to an option. As you think about a financial option, for those of you who have a markets background, the price of, uh, of options rises in times of volatility. And so equally, we think the value of each of these types of edge also grows in times such as the ones we're living through now. And so three types of edge, edge in insights, an edge in commitment, and an egg, edge uh, in execution. We think outperformance, or think of it as performance alpha or management and leadership alpha on these dimensions actually can set you apart. Being 10% more right, more quickly, more often in turbulent times such as these actually matters. But uh, let me hit them briefly. Insights. Fundamentally, the insights edge is about getting to better insight, more information from a, a, more, a more diverse range of sources, really opening up the aperture for how you are surfacing insights, privileged data across the organization. The commitment edge is really about building conviction as a management team so that you're in a position to act with more courage and with boldness and to do it in a way that has materiality and pace, right? Doing it quickly, that's the commitment edge. And then finally, an edge in execution, right? Plans are great, ideas are great, but if you're not delivering them with speed, with quality and consistency, and with the flexibility and nimbleness to pivot as market circumstances change, that isn't as useful. And so how do you think about developing an edge on execution? Got it. So let's dive a little bit deeper into what these edges mean in actual practice. Michael, can you tell us why an edge in insights is particularly critical now and, and maybe share some insights into how you actually build it? So on our first of our three edges, insights edge, and obviously in periods of volatility, that matters, right? Because if we all know what's going to happen, knowing it in a bit more detail is, is not terribly valuable. But if we're unsure, being 10% more right, 10% more often is truly an edge. And you can find insights edge in all sorts of places. To take one, um, think about supply chains. So what we have seen over the last couple of years through the pandemic is I think we've all become more acutely aware of the complexity and impact of supply chains. So one element of Insight Edge is do we have true visibility into our supply chain down the tiers so that we understand, and by the way, into our competitors' supply chains as much as we can understand, so that we're able to comport ourselves in a way that can give edge in an era of, of volatility. And so what role does advanced analytics or machine learning and artificial intelligence play in building this insights edge? It definitely helps, right? I mean, that, you know, really superior data and analytics and working that through and the years of investment, but also figuring out, you know, how to truly harness it. Do you have sensors on your systems? Are you actually governing the data in a way that comes together? I, 
we do think that that is a crucial source of insights edge for sure, but it's not the only one. Arguably a slightly more prosaic one is how do you have processes and indeed culture that is sufficiently diverse, inclusive, externally oriented enough that you get what Ishan was talking about, right? More information, better information from more sources. Can you provide any other examples of how companies have built their Insights Edge? Well, a financial services firm trying to develop a perspective on inflation. So, of course, they had the rating agencies, professional service firms, government statistics, you know, academics, and were, were, were crunching their data. But I think some things that the, this firm added, for example, historians, right? What can we begin to learn about previous historical pockets of inflation and how that might trend and what's chronic versus acute. Contrarians, right? Who's actually, who's our red team? Who are the the quiet voices that may have a different perspective that we need to ensure we're, we're listening to? Local market executives, right? Many of my clients say, if only we knew what we know, if only the center knew what is known in the organization. And some of that is systems and processes. Some of that is actually inclusion, for example, right? And how do you create the conditions whereby people who have insight, perhaps different and dis- insight and, and disagreement are able to voice that so that you then have a real insights edge. So that that's a second example. I might pick up on the uh, example Michael just shared and just put that to action with a large uh, bank that we were working with where literally low tech, they brought together uh, fairly recently, about 75 or so of their country heads, right? People running each of their markets from LATAM to different parts of Asia to Europe and North America. And they put them in a room for two days and had them share learnings, observations, insights on everything from inflation to payment flows to trade flows to regulatory themes. And really to, to get at exactly the notion Michael was describing, how do we tap into that latent knowledge and insight that is actually resident within the organization, that tacit knowledge, and harness that uh, in a more systematic way. So just one example of, uh, of a low-tech way to do it. That's great. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, so how can business leaders determine whether they have a real insights edge? What are some of the questions they should be asking themselves and their teams? So look, I think the provocation that we'd have is to really explore what type of insights edge do you have? How strong is it? What proprietary insights, what privileged insights and data do you actually have? Uh, How much of a pulse do you have on what your consumers are saying and thinking and feeling and spending? Do you have enough of this external orientation that Michael was describing a, a moment ago in terms of your access to different knowledge, moving beyond common sources of wisdom and data to unconventional sources? Do you have the visibility into your supply chain? How good is it? How quickly do you get it? Our thought is to use this as a a mechanism to really sit back and reflect on what in your industry sector or your company would truly define edge, outperformance alpha on insights, and maybe working together as a management team to define that and generate it is really what this is about. So it seems like this type of outreach could provide a lot of information, but some of it might be contradictory. So how do you really distinguish the signal from the noise and and focus in on the insights that really matter? 
Look, I think you're always going to have multiple perspectives, right? There isn't an organization out there where, you know, a consensus view on anything has led to action, uh, very few um, at least. Having a point of view and developing a perspective as a management team on what you believe is one of the essential prerequisites of, uh, of commitment. And usually that means actually creating the space to have dialogue actually creating the forums, ideally in advance, to bring the management team together, to hear those different perspectives, to have the debates, to hear both sides, to have the framing and the counter-anchor framing. But it is a heck of a lot easier to make a decision and act when this is your third or fourth conversation on the topic as a senior team. So one simple thought, uh, Sean, to the question is actually giving yourself space as a management team to have the dialogue. Got it. And you mentioned that having a perspective is a prerequisite to making a commitment. And that's the next edge. So what else is needed to create that commitment edge? And what exactly do you mean by the word commitment? Really, at its core, building an edge in commitment requires having the courage and the conviction to make decisions that are bold, that are material, and that are made with a sufficient amount of resource allocation, right? Resource reallocation is one of the best ways that you can actually manage down the number of things that you're doing. So this is the question you raised a moment ago. We, we see this picture consistently across industries, right? In general, resources are sticky. Budgets, CapEx spend, OpEx spend, sales and marketing dollars, human capital. So we take an expansive view of resources. Resources are sticky. The correlation of the same businesses allocating roughly the same dollars to the same executives year on year is exceptionally high, right? So resources are sticky. There's inertia in the system. But what we have found conclusively, and this is, this is evident in the data, in the empirical data here, Companies that are able to dynamically and more fluidly reallocate those resources to higher yielding, higher growth, higher potential opportunities on a year-on-year -year basis outperform their peer group, right? The facts are there in black and white, and that's one of the areas of boldness that we, we talk about. Uh, but there are others. We've uh, written a lot, and in fact, our, our book, uh, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick, dives into this in much more detail. But there are five areas where real boldness actually matters statistically. Resource reallocation and creating a performance management mechanism that allows you to move resources much more flexibly is a big one. But so is M&A, right? Programmatic M&A, the idea of doing between one to three deals a year, no individual transaction, greater than 30% of your market cap, but with inorganic amounting to about a third of the company's value over a decade. That's our threshold for programmatic M&A. That matters. Outspending your peers in terms of investment, right? That has been shown to pay off statistically. Being at the top of your peer group in terms of efficiency and productivity. And then finally, uh, uh, delivering gross margin growth and enhancement at a level higher than your peers, right? What we call differentiation. So those are the five areas where... The important point is it's not enough to be doing it. You have to be doing it at a quantum and a level for it to actually matter. And so it's not about directionality against these moves. It's about materiality. And that's really what this gets at. Your likelihood of outperforming your peer group is far higher if you are deploying or pulling 
one to two or two to three of these moves. So that, let me leave it at that. Um, Sean, look like you had a question. Thanks so much. Have you looked at how a recession or significant volatility might affect the feasibility or even you know success um, of some of these strategic moves? Absolutely. So the study period and the data sample is about two and a half thousand public companies that we have looked at for just over 25 years or so. So this has seen at least three significant crises, the dot-com period of, of 01, you know, 02, the global financial crisis, and more recently COVID. So it certainly covers and contemplates the resilience and the, and the volatility question. I think the broader question on does this hold through crises? Absolutely. Um, yes, Another of the big strategic moves that we were talking about is programmatic M&A. We've hosted a few podcasts on this topic, but could one of you please elaborate just briefly on why programmatic M&A is such an effective approach? Sure. Firstly, I think it comes down to this notion of resource allocation. One should reallocate resources organically, but the art is moving often as quickly as possible, as fast as the market is moving. Uh, And inorganic is a way of uh, accelerating that and often accessing resources and capabilities that, you know, either you one couldn't build or it would be much slower to build. I think often sometimes speed is neglected in strategy, right? It's not, can we get there? Uh, It was exactly what Ishan was saying. Can we get there far enough, fast enough to make a difference? And just also on programmatic M&A, Sean, because sometimes folks ask us about, you know, well, what about big deals, right? What you learn from the research is that M&A is essentially a muscle. By the way, it's an an edge, if you like, right? It's something that you can build up a real capability in by doing regularly and often, you get really good at it. And that then creates the, the value creation from successfully executing where you've got the insight and then you you build new capabilities more quickly. So that's why M&A is, tends to be so important. By the way, that's across, I think, every sector that we've looked at, programmatic, outdoes organic. And, and what role do divestitures play within this framework of programmatic M&A that you've described? These can sometimes be really hard to pull the trigger on. So how do executives think through ways to optimize their divestitures and not only acquisitions? Look, I I think, firstly, having a formal mechanism as a management team, uh, whether it's done once a year or perhaps more likely once every two or three years, to reassess the portfolio of businesses, right? What areas are we in? And where are we truly the rightful natural owners of this business, given everything that's out there in the industry? But actually having a conversation that almost we've, we've had some organizations have business units come forward every two or three years as part of their portfolio review, almost re-justifying their existence, right? And re-litigating the case for why the company is the rightful owner of this particular business or this particular product. So one is just a very simple take on the exercise of portfolio strategy as a formal discipline and have the conversation about natural ownership. I think another one gets at the idea of pruning and pruning the portfolio. And we talked a little bit about this in the context of M&A, but we have seen some organizations that just as a discipline look to trim 5%, 7% of what they do every year. It may not be an entire business, may not be divesting an entire operation, but it it might well mean spending less 
investing less, putting something into harvest mode or maintenance mode versus really growth mode and calibrating your level of spend. You know, and a third third way we've seen people do this is really looking at the company the way an investor would, right? We talk a lot about the, the notion of a, a teardown, almost an activist investor teardown, which is in fact something we, we do quite routinely with organizations. Well, you have a couple of folks come in and look at the company outside in based on public financial data. And there's an awful lot of data out there in the public domain. And they push the management team on uh, um, a whole range of these questions, including portfolio makeup and restructuring and divestitures. And so the third idea would be, how can you create some of that independent, objective, investor-backed view on your portfolio? and challenge that. And divestiture is almost always one of the things that pops on those uh, on those items. So let's talk a little bit about resource reallocation. Um, everybody knows it's good, but everybody also thinks it's hard. And uh, I think you'll agree that, uh, especially when this involves people and organization rather than just capital, uh, w- which can also be hard. Can you comment on some of the specific actions that you see leaders taking when they're really serious about resource reallocation, how do you do this well? I mean, maybe uh, Sean, I'll offer a couple of thoughts and I'm sure Sean will, will, will jump in. I mean, what, one firstly is getting transparency of where those resources are. So sometimes we talk about almost like a corporate resource map. And by the way, I say corporate because it actually needs to be held at the, you know, across the enterprise level but at sufficient granularity that you can really see things. So, you know, resources, let's say 20 or 30, in some cases I've seen organizations, especially in consumer goods, for example, with 400 value cells, right? Different, where then you can say, well, what are my resources? And by the way, importantly, those resources are not just exactly as you were saying, not just capital, for example, or operating expenditure. It's whatever is most precious to you. It may be marketing expenditure. It absolutely often is talent, can be management time, for example. So one is that granularity. Second thing I think we've seen is actually measuring it, right? Because when you see how little moves, right? If you haven't Sometimes we call it the up for grabs score, right? So if you take three business units, right? Business unit A gets 10% over a, a, at least 10% of the resources. Business unit B, 20%. Business unit C, 30%, right? Add those up. You've got 60% of resources are locked in, right? Take that away from 100. You've got 40% that's up for grabs, right? And 40%, by the way, is, is, is high, right? Often it'll be 5%, right? And so sort of calculating that, up for grab score and then saying, you know, well, surely we should be moving things a bit more. I think that that's very helpful. I think third is uh, just emphasize that notion of seeing, especially to talent, seeing talent at the enterprise level, right? Talent as an enterprise asset, capital as an enterprise asset, right? These things are not, if you like, owned by one part of the company. They're our most precious resources stewarded by the leaders of the enterprise as a whole. I think those kind of mindsets as well are, are, are very helpful. We can obviously talk specific tactics even more as, as, as well. Sean, I was going to add one thought to the, the set of things Michael was describing on resource reallocation. And look, many of these are tactics that are quite practical and quite low tech. And they're things that in particular, CEOs, CFOs, heads of strategy are uniquely positioned to do. But things like 
deallocation as a real discipline. It's easier to reallocate when you have an exercise to deallocate, right? When you're taking from Peter, robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? How do you create a mechanism to defund and deallocate some things over time? Forced ranking and stack ranking so that as a management team, you get into the discipline of saying, what are the bottom 10% from a return standpoint? And let's actually have some debate about whether we should redeploy or re-up on those. Red team, blue team, right? This idea of issues of significance and consequence. Let's actually hear both sides of the debate to make sure that we're eliminating bias and not being swayed by, you know, whoever's pitching the presentation uh, or the proposal in, in the room. The idea of a formal counter anchor, having somebody whose sole job in the room it is to constantly push and provoke and pressure test findings and doing that in a way that is complementary to what your CFO might be doing. This, this is particularly effective in eliminating some of the social discomfort. Peers don't enjoy poking holes at each other's you know, business plans. Uh, but all of those things we, we think added to the list that Michael was sharing, right? That transparency, creating the baseline can help force some of the tough conversations on, uh, on reallocation. Thanks. So how can business leaders figure out where they need to commit and whether they've actually committed enough to justify this notion of a commitment edge? What kind of questions should they be asking, like those you talk through for uh, developing an insights edge? So, I mean, one to highlight is this notion of sometimes we talk about what are our billion dollar beliefs, right? And that gets, I think, Sean, to the how do I prioritize? And there's a real question about, you know, what truly matters, right? Where are the returns on insight and commitment coming from? Sometimes when we do scenario work, we'll often talk about what are the critical uncertainties, things that are unknown, but the difference between going left and going right is, is hugely important. And those are the places to spend more time. Sometimes I, we talk to our clients, I talk to my clients certainly about three types of billion dollar belief, right? What are the trend breaks? Where is the future going to be different from the past? What's the new news, right? Where we've learned something this year that we did not know last year. And what are our contrarian perspectives where other people disagree with us, but we still think we're right. And that is a billion dollar belief against which we're we're committing. There are other questions, of course, right? I think Ishan and I certainly see and our colleagues see and many of the clients we work with that top team effectiveness and board engagement and support are hugely important to the ability to commit at the right pace and materiality, as Ishan was saying. And so doing that work regularly, but also in advance of major commitments, I think is, is, is important. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michael. So let's move on to our third edge on execution. Can you give us some examples of what constitutes a true execution edge? The execution edge is always important, right? It's always a great thing to, to of course, be able to execute. But what is different for us in this period is that because of the volatility, you may have to execute rapidly left at one point and then pivot to executing rapidly right at another point. And so the ability to do that, right, to execute in different directions as needed and pivot, that's where the, the, the edge really comes. And so three examples about um, some of what constitutes uh, that edge. So one is the technology stack, all the technology and IT infrastructure 
and digital capabilities that one has technology debt and it's a bit like dark matter right you can sort of observe its its presence but you can't necessarily directly see it but we've we've tried with our with our digital and analytics colleagues to be able to assess over 500 companies on their technology debt score and what you see is that those in the top quintile with the least technology debt their revenue is growing 20% faster than the bottom quintile 10% faster than average, right? But clearly, if you need to pivot and to execute well, it's very helpful if, you know, computer isn't saying no, right, each time. So one is, is, is my tech stack modern enough, modular enough to allow me to, to, to execute? Second example of execution edge is just organizational speed. So of course, uh, agile ways of working come out of software development, moved into banking and telco, now increasingly seen in some of the energy and resources plants I spend a, a bunch of my time with. But this is you know, cross-functional teams, various practices that bring both stability and, and speed. But the basic point here is if you look at the ability to execute quickly, it is correlated with the maturity of agile practices in the organization. So if one element of the execution edge is what does my tech infrastructure allow me to do, a second example is how quickly can I mobilize my people in an agile way to move in a different direction. Third example of the execution edge is just sort of the, the good old fashioned art and science of getting stuff done, right? So often in organizations, we will all experience people talking about, we've got an initiative, where is it? It's in progress. Right? But in progress means many different things. Is it an idea? Is it an idea with a business case? Is there a clear implementation plan agreed and signed off by the relevant stakeholders? Have all the steps been done that will actually implement it so that the value creation will flow? Uh, and then how is the value flowing? Right. So this, is, this isn't necessarily rocket science, but actually that the, there are practices that the organizations that are best able to execute have imbued that, for example, include a vocabulary and cadence around how we talk about getting things done. So not every initiative is, you know, in progress. Would you agree that too much focus on execution can actually reduce flexibility and, and potentially reduce reallocations? And if that's the case, how do you balance making this notion of commitment to execution while also maintaining flexibility and optionality. Sean, just a couple of thoughts. Firstly, we very much agree, which is, and I think for us, the the emphasis on you know, the insights edge, I think is hugely, hugely important, right? Because nobody wants to drive the train uh, you know, powerfully in the wrong direction. The second thing, by the way, is also for us, the execution edge is not just about executing in one direction, right? Because what we believe is that the way teams will win is by having that ability to execute quickly, but pivot, right? So that's why you, you can do that if you have an IT system that's flexible, if you have an organization that's agile, if you have a balance sheet that has strength, right? If you have a, to Ishan's point, a method that can be applied to executing whatever you want, whenever you want, right? And so so for us, actually, that that's, it's how do you build that muscle to run in whatever direction makes sense? And by the way, if suddenly you need to change, uh, then you can change. Michael, maybe one, one other reflection on this one. Look, I think organizations that feel like they are 
over-indexing on execution or overdoing execution almost always don't have a method. If you feel like you are spending too much time and energy organizationally on execution, more often than not, that means you don't have an approach and a method and you're relying on good leadership instincts and good faith and good intent and some target setting to get things done. And, and there's, a, there's a, an important place for that. Don't get me wrong, right? We, we all rely on, on leaders to get things done, but there is a science around execution that's worth uh, considering. Great. So what are some of the questions you'd recommend that executives ask to help them hone their execution edge in their organizations? I think the, the central one on it is the point Michael was describing earlier. What is the method or the, the system? And I don't mean a technology system, but what is your unique method as an organization to get stuff done? What's the process? What's the measurement approach? How do you set targets? How do you measure milestones? How do you hold people accountable? But what's the consistent, repeatable way to getting that done, right? Could be a transformation approach and playbook, and we've got lots of thoughts about that, but figuring out how you execute, what's the special source that gives you confidence you can get stuff done? Are you reinventing for speed? The technology point, right, as you look at the balance sheet, do you have the flexibility given tech debt and other things to actually make those big moves? Or are you constrained uh, and, and encumbered? Capabilities, whether it be procurement, we talked about supply chain, you know, leadership training in this hybrid world, lots of people learning to live and work in different, different remote models. Do we actually have the capabilities to execute in this environment? Thanks so much. So you've talked a lot about the importance of being bolder than industry peers. This might be an opportunity to touch briefly on some of the insights from the new book, CEO Excellence. And so Michael and Ishan, if you could just comment briefly on some of the leadership traits that you're seeing with CEOs and their executive teams that really put that culture of boldness in place. As you say, firstly, the CEO Excellence research that our colleagues did and published in the book, I think is a great store of, of, of insight on this and interviewing chief executives on what they specifically do. I just offer a couple of thoughts, at least from some of the dialogues I've, I've been in. I'm, I mean, one is I would particularly highlight curiosity, for example, right? I do think curiosity is crucial in periods of volatility because that's sort of, if you like, the mindset that underpins the insight edge. And so that's, that's sort of one. I think the second is that if we're going to do something, let's do it properly, right? That's sort of the boldness versus, you know, so I would, I would describe it almost as act and adjust rather than uh, watch and wait, right? There's sort of, you observe some uh, management teams, right? You say, well, you know, we talk to them, right? That's, that's very interesting, right? Thank you. Lots to reflect on, right? And sort of essentially in a, in a watch and wait perspective. Um, and then I think others, and it is often very much led from the top, an act and adjust, right? Look, got it. Let's do something. If it's if if we need to move faster, we'll we'll quickly move faster. If we need to pivot, we'll pivot. But I think that's hugely important. And then I guess the other thing I would say is doing the work to get the management team 
able to do that, right? There is real top team effectiveness work where sometimes certainly I would observe where I think organizations have sometimes struggled. It's not that they didn't necessarily know what to do, but they were all arguing with each other. They didn't have the trust in the management team. They didn't have the, you know, we know how to work things through. We know how to get the insight. We know how to talk it through so that we can move boldly. So they ended up with either not acting or some compromise action that was kind of the worst of both worlds. So that at least would be a couple of my reflections. I'm sure Ishan has plenty. Yeah, it's, it's such a great question. And I'll build on a few of the things Michael said and just add two more. Look, speed, right? It's one of the things uh, Michael touched on on execution. But I think leaders who are doing this well, who are ambidextrous, who are doing the offense, playing offense and defense, there's something about metabolic rate, right? The, the way in which they are pushing the organization to move at pace. It's not months, it's weeks, it's days that, you know, that they want to see things on, right? So the timelines are different. The other one is just uh, role modeling any of the behaviors we just described here and that Michael talked about. How do you as a leader role model getting stuff done? What does that look like? It could be everything from actually responding to emails being reliable on commitments and meetings and, and timelines that you've set forth, rule modeling, the pushing, the challenging that we talked about on resource reallocation, calling out disagreement or overly consensus-driven behavior where you think it exists, holding feet to the fire on this element of speed and pace where you think that isn't happening. And I think broadly just an, an openness to getting insight from all aspects, all parts of the organization internally and externally, right? So it's not just relying on the senior team, but talking to the front line, talking to people in the markets, talking to people in retail at the cash registers. But I think opening the aperture on how you listen and where you listen. But I think the role modeling uh, leaders can do on that speaks a thousand words. We do think there is a moment during these times of volatility for leaders to adopt a set of mindsets that are different, uh, playing offense and defense, being ambidextrous, and really considering and provoking themselves and their management teams to uh, develop that edge, that alpha across insights, across commitment, and across execution. Yes, Sean. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to share an idea for a future podcast, please email us at inside the strategy room at McKinsey.com. And you can also share your ratings or reviews on your favorite podcast player. Many thanks to all of our listeners who've already rated and reviewed the podcast. We really appreciate your comments and feedback. Please keep them coming. And if you'd like to listen to additional episodes, you can access our entire library on your favorite podcast player and on our inside the strategy room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also find transcripts of more than 120 past episodes. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights on strategy and corporate finance, you can sign up on our practice insights page on mckinsey.com slash SCF, or follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the strategy room.